This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, our guest is Bay Area Congresswoman Jackie Spear. Now, for those of you who don't know who Jackie Spear is, she's had an amazing often tragic life, and she's used a lot of those tragedies to inform the policy she's advocated for throughout her political career. My colleague Tal Copen, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, talks to Spear about how she's reviving efforts to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. That leads into a conversation about the roots of why Spear is often at the forefront of battles, like the Me Too movement, to protect women. She explains how she was sexually abused by her grandfather. And she talks about how she was shot 40 years ago on a fact-finding mission with Congressman Leo Ryan outside Jim Jones's cult compound in Guyana. Next, Tal Copen talking about the life and politics of Jackie Spear on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And here's Tal Copen talking with Congresswoman Jackie Spear. I'm here on Capitol Hill with Congresswoman Jackie Spear of San Mateo. And San Francisco. In San Francisco. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Great to be with you. So I wanted to start with something you're working on that a lot of folks may not realize is is sort of still in the news, but the Equal Rights Amendment. So this was sort of first talked about in the 70s, but you're actually hoping that we can still get it done. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So the ERA was introduced in Congress every year starting in 1923. Alice Paul was the architect of it. It finally got passed by the House and the Senate in 1972, went to the states, and 35 states ratified it. And for whatever reasons, the Congress decided to put in the preamble a deadline. Now, most amendments don't have deadlines. Uh, one, the Madison Amendment didn't pass for over 200 years, but this one had a deadline. So Congress then came back and struck the deadline and extended it for three years, and no other states ratified it. Uh, fast forward, we now have 37 states. We need 38. And my resolution, H HRES 38, will provide that the deadline that was in the preamble is struck permanently, which then allows us to add one more state, which could be Virginia, could be Arizona, could be even Georgia, 
that would get us to 38. Why is this important? It's important because women are not protected in the Constitution. Now, sometimes we're bootstrapped in through the 14th Amendment, but that can vary based on the justices that are on the Supreme Court. And as Antonin Scalia said when asked, he says, does the Constitution require discrimination based on sex? The answer is no, but there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits discrimination based on sex. And every time I say that, I almost have a shiver that goes down my back. How, how can we be in the 21st century with all of the advances ostensibly that have been made and still be looking at a Constitution that is the only written Constitution, the longest uh, in operation written Constitution that doesn't have a prohibition against sex discrimination. So for the first time in 36 years, two weeks ago, we had our first hearing on the Equal Rights Amendment again. So we're optimistic that we're going to be able to take that uh, particular resolution up uh, by August and pass it through the House. And hopefully it will have so much steam behind it that the Senate will be forced to take it up. And that's, you know, anything up here. We're talking about a divided Congress. You know, Democrats can pass whatever they want in the House, but you need Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican majority leader, uh, to agree. So is that that the idea that you sort of get momentum behind it? And I think we get momentum. I think that women are a key factor in the 2020 presidential election. I think 2018 underscored uh, very clearly that women make a difference, that suburban women make a difference, that African-American women make a difference. And if you look at the number of women that got elected to Congress in 2018, there were 35 new women that got elected. 34 of them were Democrats. 24 of them had never been elected to public office before. Um, They got up furious on November 7th, 2016. And it has changed the course of this country in a very positive way. These women are dynamic. They're they're tough. They're strong. And they, I think, are welcoming in a new era of respect for women in Congress and women generally as we look at all of these issues. Now, there there is opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. I mean, I think in general, pretty much every American agrees that you know, women shouldn't be discriminated against because of their gender. But there are arguments, and we, you know, I'm talking to you on the day that the House passed the Equality Act. We see similar arguments against that, which bans discrimination based on sexual orientation or sexual identity, uh, that this would actually, that the Equal Rights Amendment could actually harm women. I mean, do you still hear those arguments against it, that it would sort of undercut the ability of women to I think the Phyllis Schlafly argument was stuff like collect alimony and divorce proceedings and that kind of thing. They're all red herrings. They're all bogus. I mean, what one of the things that she talked about was women would be in the military. Well, women are in the military now, and there's not an Equal Rights Amendment, that they would be unisex bathrooms. Well, there are unisex bathrooms. We haven't somehow you know, seen our country crumble for any of those things happening. But we also don't have the Equal Rights Amendment. What does that mean? That means that you can discriminate against women. That means that if there is discrimination, not only do you have to show that it was 
um, in fact, happening. You have to prove that there was intention. So it's it's not a suspect classification, which is just legal jargon. But it it tell Debbie Young that who was a UPS uh, uh, delivery person for ten years and then got pregnant and was told that she had to get um, some accommodation from her physician who says, well, you can't lift more than 20 pounds. We well, said, oh, God, that's a liability. And then she lost her health insurance and had to go on a personal leave. Meanwhile, men at the UPS who were diabetic, who had had heart attacks, who needed accommodations not to lift more than 20 pounds, guess what? They were accommodated. Mm. So clearly there was discrimination but you had to prove that UPS intended to discriminate against the women. And that's because right now the protections against discrimination are all under various laws. That's what you meant by the suspect class. So a constitutional prohibition on discrimination would elevate sort of the legal, you know, category uh, so that if you were to bring a discrimination claim in court under the law, it's, it's a much higher bar to meet. That's sort of what you're saying. I'm saying that, in fact, it's a it's a lower bar to establish discrimination because you no longer have to show it was intentional. The fact right. that you discriminated is reason enough that the behavior has to change. If it were to become a constitutional. Correct. So this sort of ties in with a lot of your other work. Uh, you know, in some ways you were all about the Me Too movement before it even was a movement, right? You've, you've been working on issues related to women's rights, uh, you know, protection of women against violence and assault for for quite some time. Is that right? Right. So there's a helmet that I keep in my office that has the signatures of service members who have been sexually assaulted in the military. I keep it there to remind me every day that my work in that regard is not done yet. Uh, We have 20,000 service members who are sexually assaulted every year. 15,000 don't report because they fear retaliation. And of those that do report, a mere 500 go to court-martial and only 250 are convicted. So um, we still have a lot of work to do in that regard. We have a lot of work to do with sexual assault on college campuses, sexual harassment and sexual assault at the military academies. So there's still a lot of work that has to be done. And the system is still very paternalistic. And you you did have one success story, at, you know, at the very end of the last year with with the sexual uh, harassment legislation pertaining to Congress. What was it like to sort of get that one across the finish line? It was you almost had to pinch myself <laughs> uh, in part because uh, it was so long in coming. But when it did come, it, it came actually quite rapidly for Congress. It happened within a year. And I had the support of Bradley Byrne, who is a conservative Republican from Alabama, and he was able to persuade his Republican caucus because he's an employment law lawyer. Um, So we now have a law in the books that basically says you, as a member of Congress, if you sexually harass one of your staff or or an employee of the Capitol, and um, there's a a settlement, taxpayers aren't going to pick up the tab. Uh, you're going to pick up the tab and we're going to garnish your wages and your thrift savings plan and your social security if necessary. And we're going to provide protections to the victim. They're going to be represented by counsel. Uh, They're not going to be subject to mandatory mediation or mandatory non-disclosure agreements. So it's, it's trying to level the work 
environment so that if in fact there is that kind of harassment that the victim um, is treated equally and has the same rights under the law. All we're talking about is safety. Everyone should be able to be safe in the yeah. workplace. And you actually, I mean, your political career, you were a congressional staffer. You served in, was it county or city? County board county, of county supervisors. Board, you know, the state assembly, state senate, and you got here in 2009, is that 2008. right? 2008. 2008. And so... You must have some stories about being <laughs> a woman in a in a sphere that you know has traditionally historically been dominated by men. So the the one equalizer when you're in elective offices, you get paid the same amount, and you have the same vote. Now you don't necessarily always have the same power because until you're in a chairmanship, you don't necessarily um, wield the same level of power, but. I found that in in my work, um, I, I could hold my own, and that's not the case for a staffer who may be a single mother and needs that paycheck, and you know finds herself running around um, the member's couch to try and avoid being attacked. So. Um, I, my experience has been different. When I was a staffer, I did have a sexual harassment experience. It happened just once, but it, you know, it had an effect. And I think that it has certainly heightened my awareness uh, a great deal. When I was in the state legislature, I worked on this issue. Uh, we had mandatory sexual harassment training in the state legislature because I carried the legislation. And I had Willie Brown, who I... Um, embarrassed because he would do his end of the year bash and there was always a poster and one year it was of a, a woman's uh, calf in a high heel and black stocking on it and it was just another example of objectifying a woman and so uh, I signed it lots of staff women signed it we took the poster down to his office and I said you know don't do this anymore <laughs> How did he take that? He was mortified, <laughs> as he should have been. So is this just something that's always mattered to you? I mean, why has this issue become such a powerful driving force in your career? It's a, kind of an interesting question, and I never really uh, came to grips with it until I wrote my memoir. And because um, I was trying to understand, why do I have such a, a passion for these issues? Why, why is it they... They, um, they create this outrage in me. And I was sexually um, abused by my grandfather. Hmm. And I was really good at compartmentalizing it. Um, and it wasn't until I wrote my memoir that I realized that that's where a lot of this comes from. It, it's wanting to protect others from what I had endured. And... There was a point when I was writing the book that I wasn't even going to put it in. And I thought, you know, that's the problem. We don't talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about, um, you know, the sexual abuse that happens um, to, to family members. And so it goes on and we don't, we don't heal from it. Um, so I, um, I think that's where all of this interest in wanting to protect women um, from being
being violated mm-hmm. on any number of levels. And it is so powerful to have, you know, survivors up here and, and willing to speak out. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, fortunately, I'm not quite sure, but we've had a few more female lawmakers just in the past year open up about their own experiences. And you know, I'm working on sort of another story related to this, but one thing you do see with this new freshman class that does have, you know, record numbers of women in Congress from so many different backgrounds. I mean, you see people who aren't just speaking in theory, you know, they're drawing from their own life experiences. And uh, it, it, it has seemed to create a different environment up here in Washington when you have lawmakers who say, no, it's not just, you know, my constituent who's experienced something like that. It's me and I can speak to it. Mm-hmm. I think we do bring our personal experiences to our work. And not that we should be legislating anecdotally, but it does help us form opinions on issues. And that's why I think it's so important for us to also walk in people's shoes uh, so we can have a better sense of what it is um, we're dealing with. I mean, I led a whole group down to the border to see parents being separated from their children mm-hmm. so we could we could grasp the, um, the the depths of pain and anguish and the um, the irreparable harm that was being done and I learned that in, in many respects from my former my late boss and, and mentor Leo Ryan who was very much of a what I call experiential legislator well and that ties into another unfortunate story that you can sort of, you know, again, draw from personal experience. I, when I was, I did a story on Mike Thompson's work on the background check legislation. And we were talking about, you know, Lucy McBath, the Congresswoman from Georgia coming up here who, you know, turned the tragic story of her son being murdered over an argument over loud music into just this powerful sort of quest to come here to Congress and make a difference. You yourself have, been a victim of of gun violence with with of course the Jonestown story mm-hmm. that you know and I and you mentioned your memoir of course you've written and sort of talked about this extensively mm-hmm. but you know is that another way you've sort of found that personal experience kind of drives your your work up here oh without a doubt I mean it was the, the basis of my carrying legislation in the state legislature on assault weapon bans and being chastised because I hadn't shot an assault weapon and I turned it on the my colleague uh, who was chastising me on the assembly floor by saying you know but let me ask you a question have you ever been shot by an assault weapon (laughs) (laughs) it was very effective at getting him to shut up and sit down (laughs) and then the bill and this is you know this is in um the early this is like mid late 80s probably early 90s mm-hmm. uh, and it shows you the change in in um, our country it was passed out of the assembly went to the governor who was a republican pete wilson and got signed in the law mm-hmm. i mean republicans now won't get close to any kind of assault weapon ban for the most part mm-hmm. how else have you you know we've been talking about more women on top of and you know in some ways, the sexual harassment legislation you got done last Congress working with the Republicans, I mean, not that much gets done anymore on a bipartisan basis. I mean, what are some of the ways you've sort of observed Congress changing or politics changing over the last 
you know, decade you've been here and, and beyond? Well, there are times when I think we, we can work together. The ERA uh, bill I have, the Pink Tax Repeal Act I have, I do have Republican co-sponsors mm-hmm. on it. Now, whether we'll be embraced by uh, the majority of Republicans as we move these bills, I, you know, I can't speak to that. But um, I do think that the American people justifiably are disgusted by the lack of comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, <laughs> and the, the lack of consensus building that goes on here. And, you know, we're responsible for it, too. We won't just put a simple bill out. We're going to wrap it with all the things we want. So then it's not appealing to the Republicans to vote for it. And, you know, I do think we make a mistake mistake from time to time when we do that. But, you know, so, you know, bills become messaging instruments. And, you know, that's not ideal. Would you like to see this majority do more? I mean, I understand, you know, the first hundred days you want to pass some signature stuff, Mm -hmm. but would you like to see this majority do more things that could potentially be straightforward and move forward? Yeah. Let me just give you one example. HR1, big bill. It's got Mm -hmm. so many things around ethics and corruption and, and, you know, fixing a very broken system. One of the elements of that bill is to require every candidate for the presidency to make their tax returns for the last 10 years, I think, available to the public. Now, that's always been the case. For 40 years, every presidential candidate has done that, except for Donald Trump. And there's a reason why Donald Trump has not done it, because he's got a lot to hide. And I am concerned that he makes a lot of his decisions based on business considerations. He never put his uh, company in a blind trust. I mean, he's never done all the things that ethical people do. So if we just took that one part of the bill and ran that, how could Republicans oppose it? How could they? We've always expected our candidates to do that, and we want to know that because we want to know that they are going to put the American people first and not their personal interests. So that's an example of one that I would try and run through both houses. So you would like to see, you know, maybe some efforts to get not necessarily things that aren't messages, but very straightforward, you know, that the American people, when, you know, I, I know this, I write, when I write about HR1, I sort of have to say a, a package of ethics and voting reforms. I mean, it's hard to sort of tell people and without, you know, writing a book, like what's in some of these bills. Right. I, the other issue that I think every American cares about is that their vote counts. And the truth is we cannot say that mm-hmm. because the voting machines uh, are not subject to what we call red teaming, so they, they can't be attempted to be hacked into. Uh, those that have hacked into them at conferences have shown that there are software bugs that haven't been fixed since 2008. So I am not at all convinced that the Russians weren't able to change the votes. Really? And they're going to come in and do it again. So to have a bill that just says, all right, for federal elections, they're all going to be paper ballots, 
They're going to be scanned and they're going to be audited. Why not just do that instead of incorporating it with a whole lot of other measures that are probably not going to be passed by the Senate? So you sort of segue us into another big aspect of your work, which is uh, sort of I'll I'll use the lowercase oversight because, of course, there's the capital oversight committee. But the notion of oversight and, you know, in investigating the president, trying to get his tax returns, trying to figure out, you know, more about the Mueller report, what the Russians exactly did during the election, you know, not to use the tired expression of walking and chewing gum at the same time. But you're talking about trying to reach out to Republicans on the one side while Democrats, even though they're not, you know, going for impeachment, are still being pretty aggressive with the White House. So how do you see the sort of two tracks moving forward as we get closer and closer to the 2020 election. Yeah, time, you know, we're in a time crunch now. And I think we have an obligation under Article One of the Constitution to do the oversight. It was George Mason who said, and I will quote, um, we have inquisitorial power. And that we have a responsibility to inspect the conduct of public offices. Well, that's our job. And oversight, whether it's on the Oversight and Reform Committee or on the Intel Committee or, you know, frankly, in the Armed Services Committee, I have an obligation to look at the fact that we um, spend too much money on um, spare parts and that there are companies that are gouging us. And the Oversight Committee is looking at the cost of, of drugs and being gouged there. And the Intelligence Committee, you know, we have a responsibility to look at our national security and look at um, threats. So uh, do we have an obligation to let the American people know with a transparent um, means that this president has obstructed justice? Yes, I sat here until 1 a.m. this morning reading the Mueller report on C-SPAN with um, my colleague Mary Gay Scanlon because it's important for people to know this. Most members haven't read the Mueller report. I mean, I've probably read three quarters of it. You don't have to read too much of it to recognize that there is case after case of obstruction of justice. But um, we need the underlying documents, and I don't think we get them unless the court moves very swiftly with the contempt proceedings or the subpoenas, or if we initiate impeachment process and at least lay out the articles of impeachment and then allow the American people to do what the Senate won't do which is make a determination whether or not he should be convicted. So you think that's where this is headed? Either court or impeachment proceedings? I don't think it's good. I don't believe that we're going to... I think that we don't have the time now yeah. to complete an impeachment process. But we can lay all of that out for the American people to make their own assessment. They have the right end. We, we should give them the roadmap. You know, in many respects, that's what Bob Mueller did on obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. I mean, the president called Don McGahn numerous times and told him to fire Mueller. 
um, his attorneys would call and say things to uh, potential witnesses. Well, be strong, stay strong. Um, President loves you. All in an effort to try and make other people lie for him. Do you think we're going to get to the point where we might see officials officially hold in, held in contempt? You know, Nancy Pelosi is saying the power to fine is still on the table. So inherent, I love this, inherent contempt allows us to bring persons that we have an obligation to hold accountable. And I'm talking about all of these governmental officials, which George Mason points out so eloquently. And inherent contempt allows us to call the sergeant of arms, tell them to go pick up the person, bring them to the House floor. Um, we can question them there. And if they still are not going to be compliant, we can find them. We can also put them in jail, but I think finding them would be much more effective. If we, if we find uh, Attorney General Barr $25,000 a day, he, he might feel compelled to um, do what his job is, which is to comply with subpoena requests by the Congress of the United States. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there with a very cliffhangery. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Congressman Spear, for your for your time and, and speaking with the It's All Political podcast. It's great to be with you. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Talk Open for guest hosting today's podcast. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Jackie Spear for being on today's podcast and sharing so much about her life. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, no matter how long it takes to pass an Equal Rights Amendment, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garifoli. Thanks. <laughs>